welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Oh, a number of times. <laughs> a number of times. Fifteen years? Wow. Hey, that makes us both old. <laughs> without further ado, a season. That's a much better way. And thank you. My name's Anna. I'm gratefully recovering at the nine. Hi. And I'm going to stand up because I can't see you all. Am I going? Am I okay here? Perfect. All right. She says I can't run around a lot, so I'll try to uh, kind of stay close to the mic. But I like to see the people that I'm talking to. So um, I consider it a great privilege to be uh, given this opportunity to share a little bit of my recovery journey with you and. Um, Many of you have journeyed with me, some of you have journeyed with me, others of you come along later, and now we're journeying along this part, and and I'm just grateful for, um, whenever I'm in a room full of Essanons, even if I've never seen you before, I consider you part of my recovery, because whether you were sitting in those chairs when I walked in or not, somebody was, and, and that's the spirit, the fellowship of our program that uh, has given me so many gifts. So... Um, Nancy asked me to talk with you about what it's like to move out of the darkness and then to the light, and I made a few notes, and I don't know if I'll use them or not, but sometimes they keep me on task a little bit. So I was, I was trying to think earlier, you know, what, uh, what was it like to be in the darkness, and I'm not going to belabor some of it, some of the stories you've heard today, I've said to those people, that's my story. You know, I, I lived that life also, and some of you may have had a similar story, uh, but in particular, I think of the childhood issues. Uh, there was a lot of darkness there. Uh, it was a scary place to be. Um, and I've tried, as time has gone by, to think of the good things that I got from my childhood, because obviously got some or I wouldn't still be here. Um, and in recovery, I have been able to identify some, some positive things that my parents gave me in spite of the other stuff they gave me. You know how we are. Um, we remember the things that are painful or difficult. We don't forget those. They make an impression on us. All the good stuff kind of flies on by. But if it's really awful, we remember it, don't we? So um, I've had to kind of refocus myself. And uh, even after my parents uh, had died, which they had both been gone for quite a few years now, uh, I have begun to be able even in later years, to realize some of the gifts they gave me as well as some of the great difficulties they brought my way as well. Um, so the darkness started early, you know, from as long back as I can remember. Um, I remember saying at some point that my life used to feel like a big dark place with every now and then a little burst of light. And after I found recovery, it was like, whole sky opened up, and my life became light with every now and then little bits of darkness. So it's kind of like a, a reversal 
for me, and it's been quite welcome and quite surprising because I don't know how it's been for the rest of you, but I didn't envision, I knew that I had some tough stuff that went on in my life, but I just didn't realize how tough it was because it was all that I knew. So I think a lot of us are that way. We we just assume this is how life is, and so it doesn't seem like that big a deal. I remember in early uh, early recovery days, I think it was before, shortly before I found Essanon, uh, I was in a group where we were asked to do uh, some writing about our uh, our life, our childhood, and then we were asked to sit in a group and share that with each other, and I got picked to be the first one. And I was like, ooh, I don't want to do that. Talk about being out of your comfort zone. I really didn't want to read what I had written because I was fairly surprised at some of the things I had written that day. But it was my turn, and so I did. And so I just sat there, and I opened it up, and I read, you know, turned the page, got done, put it down. I was done. Everybody else in the room was crying, and I was stunned. You know, I hadn't been looking at them while I was reading. And so I just I just kind of sat there, and I felt really weird now because they're all crying, and I don't know what that was about. And the person who was leading the group said, uh, what are you thinking now, or what's going on for you now? And I said, I'm feeling really confused. And they said, confused about what? And I said, well, I don't understand why all these people are crying. And she said, what you have just read to us is very sad. And I was like, oh, well, it's just my life. And that was how it felt to me. And I really did feel still confused after that little interchange. It was my life. I didn't understand why that would be sad to people. I have since been able to get in touch with my feelings, as you all have taught me to do, and I've cried. Um, it was very sad. And what had happened for me, as, as does for many of us, is that based on those early life experiences, I, I developed certain expectations of myself and my world and I met some wonderful people growing up and early adult years, and um, I thought they were really great, but they weren't for me. Yeah. Um, the people that were for me were the darker people, people that were living in darkness also, the people that were having their own struggles and wanted to share them with me. And as some of you have said, you know, surely we can help them fix those problems. Uh, and what has happened for me in those relationships uh is that I have been the one that's gotten further torn down. I won't say just I, because I think in the significant relationships I've been in, we tore each other down. You know, we weren't... Um, ooh, I heard somebody talking the other day. I can't think of the word now. But there are certain kinds of relationships that are upbuilding, and there are other kinds of relationships that seem to tear down. And it's both of us that get torn down in those, in those deals. And how do we get in those situations? But some of us seem like we're almost programmed from the beginning. Uh, that that's that's how we're made, and we don't know any better. That's all we know. And I kind of liken it to uh, anybody here have an old pair of house shoes or tennis shoes or jeans or something that got holes in them. They're really nasty, and so we go get a new pair, right? Do we throw the old ones away? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> They're more comfortable, aren't they? You know, we know how they feel. You know. And they may even hurt sometimes if they got holes in the wrong places. But we keep wearing them sometimes for a long time, a long time anyway, because we know how they feel. And so I think that's how it was for me in my life. I would enter into relationships with people, not because they felt good, but because they felt comfortable, or at least they felt 
familiar. Maybe that's a better word. It felt familiar. I knew what to do. Um, and the other kinds of relationships, I just they might be really nice people, but I didn't know how to act. I didn't know what you did with that. And I didn't really consider myself worthy of being treated well in a relationship anyway. I liked it, but I didn't consider myself worthy. So the people that brought me flowers and candy and perfume and, you know, call all the time, all that stuff, I thought they were great for two or three months, and then, you know, they needed to go on. Uh, and let me get somebody that will forget that it's my birthday, that will not call to ask me out, but will kind of just expect me to be ready. Uh, you know, those kinds of people, I mean, that's the kind of people that you married, right? <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> let me see, let me see. So, in the darkness, in the darkness can, uh, can involve so much, but certainly in the childhood there was a lot of abuse, there was a lot of fear, there was a lot of uncertainty, uh, and I managed to do some similar things in marriage in a little different way, so it was very confusing. Um, I was married to someone for 24 years who didn't do the things that my parents did. There was no alcohol. There was no physical abuse. I didn't see anybody, you know, sleeping around or, you know, nobody was hitting me. And so I'm like, what is wrong with me? I remember I would say that for years. I would say to myself, there must be something wrong with me. I feel like I'm living with my parents again. I feel like I'm living in my old family. And yet there's nothing here that I can see. So that must mean there's something wrong with me, right? Well, there was something wrong with me. You all know that. But there were some problems with this other person also, whom I had idealized as, you know, the perfect, doesn't do any of these things kind of uh, thing. So when the concept of this addiction came along, um, many of you talk about the devastation of it. I didn't feel devastated. I'd already been devastated. Now I felt like, oh, that sounds kind of familiar. That sounds like us. It's a little different than, you know, what some of the stories are, but it sounds like what we've lived with for all these years that we never could get a, a handle on. Uh, I need to know more about that. And I'm not going to belabor that because that was a long time ago. Um, but it was in that process that I found these rooms, and I didn't like it here. And there are a few people still here today that remember when I came. And I was really mad. Um, I didn't want to be here, didn't care, didn't want to, didn't like the people that I met here, some of whom are in the room today, didn't like any of it. And they said, uh, my therapist said I had to go, and these people said I had to come back six times. Really didn't want to come back the second time. But they said, got to come back six times, and there's this little part of my personality that's obedient or whatever, and so I said, okay, I'll go six times, and then I'm out of there. And so some of you have heard that story before. I came six times, was so relieved when the sixth meeting was over so I could get out and go. And it was on a Thursday night. It was a room about this big, and there were about 12 people, and we nearly suffocated. Most of the time we were in that room. But I can't, that, that next Thursday came around, and I was free, right? I'd already done my six meetings. I didn't have to go back. But something just was percolating around in me, and I thought, you know, I heard something at that last meeting, and I think I need to go back just one more time. And so I went. And then I was free again, right? The next week it was the same thing. I think I need to go just one more time. And so after my eighth meeting, I gave up the struggle. I still didn't like the program. I still didn't like the people. But I quit discussing with myself whether I was going back or not. And so that was 15 years ago last month. 
Um, and it's been up and down. Um, my marriage did not survive. Um, as I told the folks in the room next door earlier, I never wanted to be divorced. Uh, I don't know why that was such a big deal to me because I come from a family of divorce. Everybody's divorced. But I wasn't going to be one of them. You know, if I could just get out on my own away from all these crazy people, I'd be okay. You know, nobody told me you have to take yourself and all them with you. But, you know, so I wasn't going to be divorced. Uh, so we all got to live through torture for quite a few years till we came around to, the, you know, it just wasn't working. Um, I knew that I had to stay in recovery, even though I wasn't always sure why, because most everybody here was married at the time, and I felt pretty out of place. Um, but I found, as someone told me, I just shared with some ne- someone next door, someone told me uh, when I was questioning whether I belonged here anymore or not, uh, did you come here? Because of who you were married to? Well, yeah, probably. Um, but is that why you have stayed? Well, no. This is my program, isn't it? This is about me. Isn't this the program that has saved your life? Well, yeah. And you're talking about leaving it? And I said, well, no, I probably won't. I just don't know how, you know, one of those little deals. Um, and it is sometimes uh, a little awkward feeling because a lot of people are still married here. And I think that's fabulous, and I hope you'll keep it up if you can. Um, And a lot of my closest friends are married, which is weird that I have continued to connect with married people so much, but but I have. But that's been part of my life. You know, I have found friends here. I have found acceptance here, Uh, whether I'm single or married or divorced or whatever. uh, Folks here have accepted me in a way that I hadn't quite experienced before. I could be who I am. I could tell whatever my story is, and people accept me anyway. Um, I've seen people break down and cry in meetings. I've seen a few people get, get so upset over their own stuff that they go out of the room for a few minutes. But I've never seen anybody get up and run out over what somebody else shared. I don't know if you all have, have seen that or not, but I never have. Pretty much we hang in there with each other, don't we? And I think that's one of the, the huge blessings i got to look at my notes because time's going to run out, isn't it? Okay. I know that um, in my marriage, a lot of what I struggled with about why I think I stayed so long was I had so much fear. And the fear came from my childhood that I couldn't make it. Uh, I didn't think I could make it uh, financially. I had children. I didn't think I could raise children alone. I didn't think I could make it emotionally. Uh, just anything you could think of, I, th- I thought, you know, be homeless, as, as some other folks have talked about. And and I still had children, so I didn't know how to do that, I didn't know how to manage. Um, and in the beginning, when I knew there was something wrong, I had no children, I had a college degree, I had a job. Uh, I was the support of our family at that time, and I still couldn't figure it out. So having children later made it a little bit harder to think about, but the truth is, it wasn't because I had children that I was afraid to leave. I was afraid to leave before I had children. So um, I didn't own all that for a lot longer, you know, until a lot later. In the uh, later years of the marriage, it seemed to me that most of the little lights I had seen twinkling went out. I felt very isolated, very lonely, very alone. Uh, our relationship was very, very shut down. And I was in a situation where I felt I could not share that with anyone. And so 
I didn't share it with even friends. I didn't have a support network to deal with that before I found Essanon. Um, and even after I found Essanon, I was kind of limited. Some of you all fussed at me because of the way I would share. It kind of veiled what I was talking about. And they said, what you just said was really interesting, but we're not sure what you were talking about. You know, um, because I was, I was really into um, the secret keeping, which I had learned in my childhood. And that was all I knew. You know, I didn't know how to, to let that go. So um, the social isolation, we did a few things with other couples, and I really didn't do much with other individuals, and we didn't do anything with each other. So, you know, that kind of limits you. Um, I felt this intense despair in my spiritual life. I just felt so this huge chasm between myself and the uh, God of my understanding. None of this made any sense to what I had believed. And the thought of leaving my marriage really didn't fit into what I had believed. And I'm not saying what other people had put on me. It's stuff I had taken on for myself. Um, and so I just felt this huge distance. So I felt really cut off. I really felt um, that I was dying. Uh, I had some physical difficulties, but I also felt that I was dying emotionally and certainly spiritually. I really felt dead. And I can't find any other words that connect with the feeling that I had. And uh, I think perhaps some of you may have had a similar experience in, in your lives, or some of you may be having that now. There was a time, I think, in my childhood when I still had hope. I don't know where that came from. There was that little spark. I had hope. But by the end of my marriage, that little light of hope had just gone out. I didn't see much hope. I didn't see hope for the marriage. I didn't see hope for myself. I didn't see hope for a reconnection with a higher power. You all gave me some other options. And that was when the light started to come back on. You all gave me a way to find hope again. That life could be good even if it was different than it was now or than I had expected or hoped it would be. Uh, you all gave me the light. And so in the light, let me tell you some of the things I've found. Um, I found a real sense of peace and serenity, not every day, but I found a lot more of that than I ever knew before. I have found um, a sense of, I remember in the early days, I remember saying to people in meetings, I feel like the cobwebs are coming out of my head. I can think again. You know, I can make decisions because before I was so confused. Anybody in here ever been confused? I was just confused all the time. I didn't know what I was supposed to do, you know. And I didn't know who I was supposed to listen to. And sometimes my spouse would say things that seemed really crazy, but in the middle of it, you know, that little grain of truth that an addict gives you that we all grab onto. And so I grab onto that, and I think, I know that's true. So maybe all that other really crazy sounding stuff is true also. But it felt so confusing. You all helped me to clear the cobwebs. I don't know how you did that, but you did it. And I could think, maybe for the first time, you know, some of this is being reconnected. Some of it, I think I got connected for the first time. Um, I began to get some confidence in myself, which I didn't have before. I began to develop a much different relationship with my children. And it was far deeper, more honest than I had ever been with them before. Uh, by then, they were young to no mid to mid to late teens, I guess. Uh, by, the, by that point in time, 
I began to develop a relationship with a higher power that I just didn't know I could have. It was like nothing I had ever had before. I thought I'd have one and lost it. And what I got was so much better, so much more real, uh, and and continues with me. Uh, I didn't know how I'd make it financially, and by the time I decided to leave my marriage, I really didn't know how I was going to make it. But I didn't worry about it anymore. I knew I was going to be taken care of. And it was un- just incredible how that rolled out for me. Uh, I've had some ups and downs in later years with that, but I, I always know at my deepest level that I will be, ta- be taken care of. I will be The doors will open for me where I'm supposed to walk through. Sometimes I'm kind of um, stubborn about that, and I don't always walk through the doors that are open, but that doesn't mean they haven't been open for me. Um, in recent years, uh, I've had an experience that my sponsor and I were talking about this uh, this morning, actually, and I said, I, I don't know how to connect this, and she says, well, talk about what you've been doing here lately, and I said, well, it hasn't felt like darkness, but I'll share it with you a little bit anyway. It hasn't felt like darkness, nothing like before, but it's felt like a real intense kind of searching time. And it's been going on for mm, three years, four years maybe, I don't know, different parts of it. And it's affected every area of my life. Um, what am I doing with my recovery? What am I doing spiritually? What am I doing uh, professionally? What am, you know? What about religious community? Everything. It's, I've questioned and questioned, and finally I just kind of have thrown it all up for grabs. And it's been really wild uh, and very comforting, which is very confusing to me, you know, or it would be, but it's felt okay. It's felt okay. I've been questioning, and I've been trying out different things and talking to different kinds of people and getting information here and trying, yeah. And it feels good. Uh, I've allowed myself some space at times. I'm not always in meetings. Uh, when I used to always be in meetings, sometimes I just take off for the weekend, and I just go, you know, out to the state park or something. I have to have some space for myself. And so sometimes I just make that space for myself. Uh, and some of you heard I meant to do that this weekend, and I have written it in my book and forgot, oh, no, I can't do that. We're having we're having a conference this weekend. Uh, but it's coming up in a couple of weeks. I'm going to do that. You know, I, I just need to do those things for myself. And so this program has taught me to make the tools, to get the tools that I need and, and make use of them for whatever's going on. You know, I'm not in a relationship now, so I'll move on into what I think Nancy asked me to talk about, which she says she doesn't think she asked me, but she said she wanted a single person who was still an Essanon. And I have been, uh, as I said, I've been an Essanon for 15 years, and I've been single for 13 years. So, uh, and part of that time I was separated. So um, most of my life in Essanon has been as a single person. Um, now I've probably lost track of what it was. Okay, since I'm not in a relationship, I'm not dealing on a daily basis with an addict in my house, as some of you all are doing, uh, but I'm having to practice these principles in all my affairs, you know, and that means other kinds of relationships that I have, work, uh, this search thing that I've been on, or and I think I'm still on, uh, relationships with children, other family members, it's everywhere, and I didn't come... I may have thought I came to Essendon because of the spouse that I had, but I was raised in a sexaholic family. I didn't have those words. We didn't talk about that. There were so many other addictions going on. There were things more dangerous. I didn't even notice that until I'd been here for a while. And I'm like, oh, yeah, of course that's what that was. You know, I just 
call it by a different name. Uh, a rose by any other name is what? There you go. So, um, I wanted to share something with you. Maybe there's time. I'll do this real quickly. Um, as I was preparing for this, I was kind of just le- leaping through some of the literature, reading a little bit here, reading a little bit there. Um, and I came across something in this green book, which I have had this book for a while, but I haven't read it all. I've just kind of, you know, pieced through it here and there. And so the other night I was reading, doing that again, and I was reading some stories. I want to read a little short story to you about boundaries. This is something that I have learned so much about here. Okay. I was surprised when I saw this story, so I want to read it to you. I have learned a lot over the years about how to deal with my son's sexaholism. I learned early on that some of his behaviors were triggers for my own early abuse issues. The behaviors which impacted me mostly had to do with suggestive clothing, pictures hung in his room, which he invited me to view, and bringing into my house the very provocative young woman he had just picked up at the grocery store. Um, It felt very strange to admit that my own child could trigger my fears and misgivings. And I found it best just to sit down with him and explain that I could not be around such behaviors as they tended to re-traumatize me. Those conversations were all about me and what I needed. Not about him or what he was supposed to be doing with his life. I was early in recovery and had learned that I had the right to set boundaries for myself, even with my children. Setting boundaries seemed to help both of us. My son found his own recovery in Sexaholics Anonymous about a year later. As a late teen, it was hard for him to fit in, but he kept going to meetings, and he found his way. At one point, he was picked up by an older woman in Essamon, um, herself new to the program, and when I questioned this relationship, he insisted they were just friends. After a few weeks, it was obvious that it was more than a friendship. And I was able to tell him that he would need to move out of our home uh, if he chose to continue this relationship. This was a difficult line for me to draw, as I feared he would just move in with her. But I knew that I had to let go of the outcome and just do the footwork. As it turned out, they stopped seeing each other soon after that. Although he has often credited S.A. with saving his life, some years later he decided it was too complicated to be a young, single person following the SA sobriety definition. Another gift of my program was learning that my children have a higher power, and I am not it. What a relief to realize that they rest in the care of a power greater than their mother, regardless of the decisions that they make. Today, many years later, my son has chosen to work another 12-step program, but has not returned to SA. I find that my job is to continue working my program and keep my mouth shut about he's, how he is working his. Uh, I never hide if I, if what I'm doing if I'm going to a meeting, but I do not make a big deal of it. He often takes me to the airport when I'm heading for a program convention and asks me about it when I return. Today, relating to a 30-year-old man who is not my spouse, it seems that his personal life is really none of my business unless it infringes on mine in some way. He has been remarkably respectful of my needs, and when I sense that he may be having difficulty, I just take my concern to my higher power and turn it over. I know that he is quite familiar with the tools and will find his way as he is able. 
the thing that surprised me about this story is that I wrote it a few years ago, uh, and I didn't realize it was in this book. Um, so he's a little older than that now, but it is a gift. We have a very good relationship today. I don't understand how he lives his life. And every now and then he tells me things that sound a little out there on the edge to me. Like recently he told me about uh, an ex-girlfriend that had been in town. And I'm going to wrap it up. Um, Nancy's coming to get me. Um, an ex-girlfriend had come to town and they had gone to lunch and had spent several hours and had a really good conversation. And how much he missed the kind of interaction they had and all that uh, this young man has been married for over two years and is expecting his first child soon. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And I said, well, was your wife with you? you know, or how does she feel about it? And he said, I don't know exactly. I think I think she thinks it's kind of awkward. Well, she came and she came and met us at one point for like 15 or 20 minutes. But I think she may have some issues with it. But I guess she'll just work that out. And I'm thinking, I guess they'll both work that out. You know, I thought that was a little unusual. But maybe it wasn't. Um, and if it is, she'll work that out with him, right? <laughs> um, so I don't know. I think there might have been more things I was supposed to cover, but I think my time's about it. So I would just say to you all that I never believed that I could live through what I have and be a divorced woman, which I never wanted to be, uh, and not just be covered in shame the rest of my life. And the truth is, um, there are a lot of things in my life that aren't the way I would have envisioned them or would have hoped for them to be. But my life is truly better than it has ever been or than I ever could have dreamed it to be. And uh, Essanon continues to be a part of my life. It's my foundation, and I know that. Um, I will always return to the principles of this program no matter what I'm facing. This is what has helped bring insanity to my life. And even if this is the first time you've been here or if you've been here a month or whatever, you're part of my life now. And I'm grateful to you for that. Just by being in the room, we share this bond with each other. And we bring down that shame that many of us have felt that we were involved with people, you know, or we were born to people or whatever that brought this issue into our lives. You know, we were brought together for a reason and I think our reason is to heal ourselves and go and enjoy what's left to us of this life. Thank you. I appreciate that. When when I she was reading that story, when Anne was reading that story, it Anne wrote this, Anne wrote this, Anne wrote this. <laughs> so it, it's good that and it lets you know that the authors of these stories are the same women and men who sit in your chair. That's who's written this. There is no on high person or on high committee. It's us. Let me read you a little bit about from the Essanon book. Number seven, every group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. I got a letter in the mail from the World Service Office not too long ago. And this is the time of the year we are um, not doing as well as we could. And so I'm going to go ahead and pass around an envelope. And I would really appreciate if you would 
make a little donation. Or a big donation. Or <laughs> double, double, dipper donation. But anything that you can give today will be very appreciated. Thank you. I'll give you a minute or two to rustle in your wallets and then we could pass it around kind of silently. Again, I want to thank every one of you in this room who participated in getting this meeting together. Cindy has worked very hard in the registration view. Carolyn has done her work in publicity. Um, and I want to thank you, Jean, Barbara. Barbara has done literature. Helen has been very, very instrumental in helping with also the registration table. All of our speakers, Ann, Cindy, everybody who's participated in running a meeting, thank you all. Our next speaker is Cindy, who's been very instrumental in helping putting this meeting together. And she's going to give us her experience, strength, and hope. Take it away, Cindy. Do you want me to move it this way? Okay. You think that's close enough? Is it, is it jumping around? Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm watching the monitor thing. <laughs> it makes me crazy. And I'm, I'm sitting up here and looking around and going, crap, what am I going to say? Um, the, um, yeah, it's a privilege to be here. And, and like Anne, um, I look at each of your faces and um, feel a tremendous debt of gratitude that, that you are in the rooms. Um, well, crap, I think I'm going to start crying. Um, when I needed you, you know, um, and even if you weren't sitting in those chairs, you individually, your spirit was or your sister was or your brother was. And... Um, and I'm really grateful to be here today. Um, you know, I've been trying to imagine what I would say um, to you all. And I kind of looked over my life and, and kind of organized it into chapters. And I think the first chapter was really, I would title injury and re-injury. And um, my story is, is very similar to many of yours, um, probably not as severe as many of yours. Um, but, it, you know, that time of injury and re-injury was, was really characterized by these feelings of fear and, and survival. And I know that the, um, a feeling of survival isn't one of those kind of valid feelings that you'll hear about in a treatment center, but those of you who are survivors know what I mean. There's this grim determination that I will overcome this and and when I think about my childhood that's that's what was there I don't remember hope I just remember survival and I remember fear and I think about the things I learned during those dark times there there you know I don't remember much about my childhood um so I didn't see the sparks the points of light that you saw in but um you know, I, I learned some pretty um, big lessons. Um, one of them was was to keep secrets. And um, I remember being a toddler. I mean, we're talking three three years old. 
and I walked into um, the um, kitchen of our apartment, and my mother was entertaining a stranger there. And she didn't say a word, and I didn't say a word. And at three years old, I knew I would never speak of that. And I wonder how I learned at three that this was a secret. How much more had I learned before that, that we didn't speak of certain things in my home? And um, that was one of the things I learned. You know, if, if my biological parents are to be believed, I was really, I qualified for Essanon at the point of conception. Um, both of my parents would, if they knew anything about recovery, um, would claim that the other was a sex addict. Uh, I don't know. It kind of looks like it. Um, the other thing I learned during that point of injury and re-injury, or during those times of re-injury and re-injury, was, was that, um, that I had to be vigilant. Um, another early memory also about that time when I was about three, we lived um, in an apartment above a grocery store and there was a set of metal stairways that ran up the exterior of the building. And I learned that safety was at the midpoint of the stairs. As I learned if I sat in the middle at the midpoint, halfway up or halfway down, depending on what you, what you want to call it, I could keep my eye on the whole world. I could see trouble coming from either direction because there was danger, danger in the apartment, and there was danger on the streets as well. There were some boys in my neighborhood who, who molested me. So I learned to be vigilant, and even now, you know, I, I sit with my back against the wall, and um, I usually cross my arms. I don't like to sit with my arms unfolded. So I, I notice that even now that vigilance has, has carried forward. And I learned how to escape during that time. You know, I learned, as Nancy was sharing I, earlier today, I, I learned to escape into books. And even before I could read, I was making up stories. So I learned to live in my head really early. And that carried through, um, well, even today, you know, if I'm going on a plane ride, I've got to have a book because the time doesn't exist when I'm reading. And fantasy, my relationships, I don't think I ever had, all of my relationships were between my ears until I entered recovery. And when I say re-injury about this time, as I grew up, this time really lasted until I was about 23 or 24 years old. Because when I hit adolescence, after I left home, I was the model student. I was the model daughter. Boy, I knew how to make it look right for my family. But as soon as I left home, I started injuring myself. I started drinking a lot in college. And I never went through a dating phase. I just went through a sex phase. I, you know, you get asked out and you have sex. That's what I did during, and that's how I re-injured myself. I had this belief, and I remember thinking that, that I could, that that was a key to, somehow sex was a key to my feeling better, that some, I could have sex with somebody and he would make me feel better. It's really sick stuff. Um that phase really ended when I met my first husband. All of that acting out ended around being promiscuous and that kind of stuff. I was perfectly content to be um, monogamous. And 
But that phase, injury and re-injury, moved me into my control phase, what I call control. And the the feelings that dominate that period of my life, really for the next 20 years, were um, really rage and depression bordering on despair. You know, we hear anger, fear, and depression. I never hit anger until I got into recovery. I went straight to rage. And depression, I went straight to despair, you know. And, and of course, I was living in the extremes. But control, I tried to control things in a lot of different ways. I, um, You know, I tried to control my what was happening in my life by looking good, um, having the right friends, having the right house, having the right education. I could make it look really good. Um, and, and I did keep it looking pretty good for a long time. But in the meantime, as my disease progressed, um, yeah, I get into the over stuff. I was either totally shut down or I was overdoing it. I was overspending, over drinking, over busy, over, um, concerned, you know, over, overseeing everything and everybody in my life or overlooking. Mm-hmm really overlooking what was going on in my life. And, you know, it's amazing how much stuff I tried to fit into my life trying to control what was happening. I remember in 1998 when I I, met, I divorced my first husband. He had two affairs. I'm kind of going back a little bit. Um, my first husband and I were married for 12 years, and he had an affair at about the seven-year mark. And I said, if it ever happens again, you know, you're gone. And, well, of course it happened again. And um, and I said, bye. I, I just never looked back. I was so rageful and hurt and vengeful and judgmental and arrogant and prideful. My pride cost me my first marriage because the man came to me and he said, I have a problem. I'm a sex addict. And I said, that's your problem and kept walking. My kids have paid the price for my pride. They really have. Um, so anyway, I divorced him and, you know, I went to on site and I went to therapy and you know, I always think I'm the smartest person in the room. So I thought I had figured all this addiction stuff out, and it was all his problem. So I went to an Ethanon meeting, and I thought, this isn't for me. I divorced the problem. <laughs> so anyway, I got married again. And this guy looked really different than the first husband. He wasn't flamboyant. He was very down-to-earth. I mean, he courted me. It was lovely. Every time he came to my door to pick me up for a date, he brought me stuff. I had never had gifts like this. It was incredible. I mean, you know, how cats will bring you dead mice and stuff. <laughs> this guy was bringing me stuff. It felt great. I've always been grateful to cats like that, you know. <laughs> but anyway, he was very different. And we had been, we dated for a couple of years. And, you know, I was just so cocky about this. I thought I that the addiction was gone. And three years into our marriage, two, no, maybe it was just two, I forget, 
two years, I think, into our marriage, um, I discovered my husband on the phone with a woman. And and talk about control. <laughs> I was in the middle of remodeling our house. <laughs> I was not only in the middle of remodeling our, the house that we were living in, I was helping to remodel a cabin up at Center Hill. I had started a new job, and we had just taken in uh, a kind of a foster child. One of our kids had brought brought a stray home one day, and so I had all this stuff going on because there was so much insanity in my life. I had to keep busy. But the day I found out about my husband's affair, I said, <laughs> "It always makes me laugh." Now I said. It's okay, honey. Once we get the bedroom finished, everything will be just fine. <laughs> um, it wasn't, of course, and it wasn't until another year, uh, another year, and um, a lot of you know how those revelations go. You know, you're just kind of um, brought to. I was brought to my knees by the stuff, the addiction in my home. And um, I'm grateful that my husband went to treatment because his his addiction was really the door through which I entered my own recovery, and that's the third phase, and that's that's the phase I'm in now. And we've we've been at this for about four years, four and a half years now. Um. And I, I can look back and I can think how differently I look on him now. You know, I used to really get into the martyr stuff and being a victim. And I used to think it was a moral problem of his. And, and you know, I've, I've looked at it as a disease model a lot. But this past week, I think I've got time for this story. This past week I heard a story about a woman whose husband had just been behaving horribly. I mean, she was. This guy was awful to her, saying bad things, very unpredictable. You know, she never knew what kind of mood he was going to be in. Uh, I mean, you know, it, it sounds like our experience, right, with our own addicts in our lives. And um, so, she finally just kind of stood up for herself and said, "Either things change, or I'm getting a divorce." Well, he kept act, acting so crazy, and so she filed for divorce. And a couple of weeks later, the guy went to his doctor and he had a brain tumor. And it was his tumor that was causing him to act so badly. And it's my husband's disease that makes him act so badly. You know, it's not about me. And as long as I was thinking it was about me, I couldn't see what kind of options I had for my own recovery. It's not about me. It's about his disease, and it's about my disease and my willingness to address it and tackle it. Um, <clears throat> I got into recovery, and I started going to meetings, and, and I think that that wisdom, for those of you who are kind of new to the program, you know, go to meetings, get a sponsor, work the steps, and keep coming back. That. Those are the things that saved my life because I really was at the point of despair. I lay um, one day and I said to a friend of mine, I want to die. This hurts so bad. I want to die. And I'm grateful for that moment because it, it showed me just how much the disease had harmed who I believe myself to be. 
I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.